Well, finally, it would seem, after numerous attempts to withdraw for a time of rest with his disciples, who along with Jesus have kept up a rather grueling ministry pace, they have found that rest that they were looking for in the district of Caesarea Philippi, as we read in verse 13. And at the same time, they have, and in the time that they have together, before they meet up again with the crowds in chapter 17, verse 14, if you look at it, they come to the crowd again in chapter 17, verse 14. In the time between then, this, this walking in Caesarea Philippi, and their reconnection with the crowds, Jesus is going to take this opportunity with the disciples to pose to them this most important question. Who do you say that I am? Now, I want you to hear me. This is the single most important question that Jesus has ever raised with his disciples. And it remains the single most important question for every individual human being on earth today. It has remained the single most important question from the day Jesus asked it all the way to today. And it will continue to remain the single most important question from now until Christ returns. Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? The reason this question is so central, so significant, so crucial, so essential, is that how you answer it will determine your eternal destiny. So you see, this is no flippant question. It's not a meaningless question. This, this, if you think about it, is really the only question. And we can get lost sometimes in all of the different questions that we're constantly asking ourselves in life. Am I going to have enough money for retirement? Do I like my job? Am I happy? Where is my career headed? Is what I'm doing in my job meaningful? What do I like most about myself? Who am I? Do I treat myself with love and respect? What makes me angry and why does it make me angry? Who's my favorite team going to draft this year in the draft? What's my biggest frustration in life? What are my goals in life? Am I living my best life now or is there something more that I could be doing to live a better life? How do I find my ideal mate? All of us at some point have asked questions like these in our lives. All of us have been a little anxious over questions like these in our lives. But listen to me. Ultimately, these questions all mean nothing. Only one question remains. The single most important question. The question that has the far-reaching blessings or consequences attached to it. When you get right down to it, your answer to this question that Jesus posed to his disciples on this day is the only thing that truly matters. It is the question that trumps all other questions. It is the question that supersedes every other consideration. Who is Jesus? Because make no mistake, 
There is coming a day for each and every one of us in this sanctuary this morning when we will draw our last earthly breath. When all our earthly labors will cease. When all the things we once worried about will no longer, we will no longer worry about them. They will all vanish. When none of the questions we fretted over and worried about will remain except one And that's the question we'll have to give an account for when we stand before the judgment seat of God. Where we will have to give an account of ourselves to God, according to Romans 14. And that account will center on, it will concentrate on how you answered this question during your earthly life, during your earthly sojourn. Who is Jesus? Did you answer it like Peter? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as a result, turn to Him in faith and repentance. Ultimately, the Bible tells us that ultimately every single one of us will answer this question at some point in the future, truthfully. Paul wrote in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But hear me. If you don't answer this question during your earthly life, then when you make this confession, when the time comes that you make this confession, it will come too late. To truly confess Jesus now, today, at this moment will bring blessings as your sin is forgiven and the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is credited to your spiritual account. But to deny Him, to refuse Him, to rebel against His call to repent and believe the gospel because for some reason you dismiss Him or disbelieve His words about who He is. To postpone your confession so that the first time you say Jesus Christ is Lord happens after you die and you're standing before God for judgment, this will result and lead to your eternal damnation. So you, right now, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say the Son of Man is? This is the question that Jesus will get to and center upon with his disciples. But before he gets there, he asks his disciples a different question. He begins this interaction with another question, asking them first, in verse 13, who do people say that I am? You see that? Who do people say the Son of Man is? And the answer that the disciples give breaks up into four parts. The first being, some say that you're John the Baptist. Herod, for example, he said this exact thing when he heard about the tremendous fame of Jesus. If you flip back to Matthew 14, verse 2, we read, Herod saying, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And along with some saying that Jesus was John the Baptist reborn or re-resurrected, others said, secondly, that he was Elijah. You see that in the text? For example, in Mark chapter 6, after Herod stated his belief that Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected, others said in Mark 6.15, no, 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 he is Elijah. 
See, Israel had been waiting. They had been expecting the return of Elijah or some Elijah-type figure who would prepare the way for Messiah's arrival. And so the people discussed among themselves whether or not Jesus, not whether he was Messiah himself, but instead whether he was the Elijah to come to prepare the way for Messiah. You see, they had clearly missed the significance of John the Baptist's ministry. The disciples continued. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. And they continued. Some say you're Jeremiah. That's interesting. According to the Jewish apocryphal writings, the writings of the Maccabees during the intertestamental period between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, the Jewish peoples believed that it was Jeremiah who took the tent and the tabernacle along with the ark and the altar of incense and hid them in a cave to protect these holy items from defilement during the time of their exile or deportation. We read this in 2 Maccabees, and I quote, It was also in the same document that the prophet, that's Jeremiah, having received an oracle, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow with him, and that he went out to the mountain where Moses had gone up and had seen the inheritance of God. Jeremiah came and found a cave dwelling, and he brought there the tent and the ark and the altar of incense. Then he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed him came up intending to mark the way, but they could not find it. When Jeremiah learned of it, he rebuked them and declared, The place shall remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. Then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. So this was a tradition that developed in, the, in between the times of Malachi and the times of Christ. And as a result of this tradition, there were many in Israel who were expecting the return of Jeremiah before Messiah came, and he would bring with him these holy items that had once been hidden in this cave. As the Lord once again showed his mercy to Israel, as his glory appeared to them once again in the cloud like it did at the end of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, where we read, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the, glory, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. They were awaiting and expecting that day. And so they saw in Jesus, again, another precursor to Messiah, but not Messiah himself. And still others, fourthly, consider Jesus to be one of the prophets. You see that in verse 14? Meaning, everyone understood if you were following Jesus around, if you were traveling with him, it was not hard or difficult to see and to note that there was something special about him, that Jesus was not your normal, run-of-the-mill fella. They could all see the anointing of the Lord upon him. And so perhaps, if he isn't any of these other figures, if he's not John the Baptist reborn, if he's not Elijah, if he's not Jeremiah... Perhaps he is one of the other prophets upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. And so you see, even from these earliest of days, during the times when Jesus made his dwelling among us, ideas and thoughts about his true identity were varied and diverse. Something that hasn't really changed all that much from that day to this, has it? In our own day, 
There are so many ideas and so many opinions <coughs> about the significance of Jesus, about who he is. And they continue to float about as they did for the crowds in Christ's day among the crowds in our own. But if you look at all of the ways that people identify Jesus or who they say he is, the vast majority of human conjectures about the Lord Jesus Christ fall woefully short of his real and true identity. There is only one correct understanding of Christ's identity. He is the Messiah. He is God come to us in the flesh. He is the Son of the living God. But the crowds following Jesus and the disciples around spoke of him as forerunner to Messiah, <coughs> not as Messiah himself. But why is that? So why is it that they could get on board with Jesus being some sort of forerunner to Messiah, but not Messiah himself? Because Jesus appeared on the scene crying out for Israel's repentance. He came on the scene crying out for their return to the Lord, and this violated their presumptions and calculations. They didn't think they needed to repent, nor did they care to truly serve God with any sort of wholehearted devotion. Instead, they pinned their hopes on externals. They pinned their hopes on following a complicated and convoluted set of externals, of self-made rules that they believed pleased the Lord. They also rested on their ethnicity, the fact that they were Jews, the fact that they were God's chosen people, Israel. They believed that simply by virtue of their bloodlines, they were loved by the Lord and His goodwill. That secured the, the goodwill of the Lord for them. And so here they were, simply waiting for Messiah to arrive, not to call them to repentance, but instead to take up the mantle of authority and to lead Israel in an armed revolt against Rome. To bring Israel once again into the land of freedom, into the land of promise, where they would, once, where they would be liberated and autonomous. But listen, Jesus would not, Jesus will not, fulfill the covenant promises to Israel until they do hear and obey his call to repent and return to him. But because Jesus didn't conform to their expectations, they refused to see him as their long-awaited Messiah. And they dismissed the testimony of John the Baptist, who was it, the actual preparer of the way for Messiah, when he proclaimed that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's like they didn't even hear it. And in the same way, that the people were all over the map in terms of assessing the identity of Jesus in that day, so we find ourselves in a similar situation today. Just like the crowds of those days spoke generally positively about Jesus but stopped short of acknowledging who he truly is, so we find ourselves in a time today, a kind of a comparable state of affairs, right? The world we live in has a lot to say about Jesus. Every year, Time Magazine or some other major publication will put out an issue that focuses exclusively on Jesus with titles like titles splashed across the cover like Who Was Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus Revealed. 
with their conclusions generally being that Jesus was a great teacher of love, a great model for inclusion, acceptance, and tolerance. Culturally speaking, the general idea about Jesus, if you just were to go around and ask people, is that he is, uh, he's, a, he's a nice guy. He's a generally nice guy who set down some vague commands for us to be nice to each other, to not judge each other, to accept everyone, and to do what makes you happy. I've heard a number of people ascribe to Jesus a number of different things. I've heard people say Jesus is a communist. I've heard people say Jesus is a capitalist. I've heard Jesus is a Buddhist monk. He's a reincarnation of Krishna. Some have said he's an alien. Some have said he's a countercultural rebel. The Jehovah's Witness believe that he was the Archangel Michael. Some call him a radical. Some call him one prophet among many, calling people to the one God who exists. Some people say he was just a strictly, only, always very nice type of fellow. It's not, common to, it's not uncommon to hear things like that, is it? Jesus was a good man, a teacher of love. Or that Jesus was a kind man, accepting all people and all lifestyles without judgment. Or Jesus was a great moral teacher and a great model for all of us. Even all of the world's religions, aside from Judaism, make room to speak kindly about Jesus, describing him to be a prophet or to be a good teacher or to be some enlightened guru of some kind. But all of these opinions of the crowd, all of these opinions of the people are at best woefully inadequate and at worst plain, wrong, and heretical. The Jesus that people speak tenderly about is the Jesus that they've crafted into their own image. A version of Jesus that simply agrees with them on everything. The world treats Jesus like, uh, like a block of Plato attempting to shape him and to fit him and to mold him into some sort of comfortable shape. A shape that allows us to send a nod in his direction while we still live solely for ourselves as our own authority traveling down the well worn path of self-idolatry. Because like it was for the crowds, we also despise the idea of actual repentance and submission to someone outside of ourselves. And that's exactly what Christ demands. Humanity in its sinful idolatry and rebellion will always, left to itself, choose to ascribe lordship to ourselves rather than to Christ. Humanity, left on its own, will find ways, will create ways to speak about Jesus with flowery language, recognizing him to be special or significant in some way, but we will always stop short of identifying him as Lord and Savior. Because to do so means that we must submit to him. We ought to hand over the reins of our life to him. We must hear and obey what he actually commands which for most is an unacceptable proposition. It's actually an unacceptable proposition to fallen, corrupt humanity left on its own. And C.S. Lewis, speaking to this tendency, this all-too-common human tendency, wrote this most famous rebuttal, saying this, 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. When you listen to Jesus speak, he says things like, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. But the crowds here in this text, they never got that far. They always stopped at Elijah or Jeremiah or John the Baptist. The crowds in our day, they always stop at nice man, good teacher, model for us to live by. And as the disciples listed a few names being discussed among the crowds on this day, Jesus now turned his attention to the disciples themselves as if to say, okay, that's what the people out there are saying about me. Are you going to run with the crowd? Will what they are saying about me determine what you believe about me? Or will you look to me, hear my words, see my works, and recognize who I truly am? And Jesus pointedly looks at the disciples and say, says, but who do you say that I am? That you there is an emphatic you. And it's plural. He's asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? It's the most pointed question. And Simon Peter immediately piped up to answer the question. See, Simon Peter has a tendency among the disciples to, for, to speak for the group as their representative. It's a common thing that Peter did regularly throughout the Gospels. We see it, for example, in Matthew 15, when Jesus told a parable and they couldn't quite understand it. It's Peter who pipes up in 15.15 and said, Jesus, explain the parable to us. And again, when Jesus is teaching them the difficult truth that it is difficult for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's Peter who speaks on behalf of the disciples in chapter 19, verse 27, saying, see, we have left everything and we followed you. What will we have? Peter speaks numerous times as representative of the disciples. And so in answer to this question about Christ's identity posed to them by Jesus, Peter speaks up on behalf of the twelve and he gives the first clear, unambiguous declaration of Jesus as Messiah from the lips of any human being up to this point. God has told us in the Gospels that this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, but this is the first clear, unambiguous human declaration. In verse 16, saying, You are the Christ. You indeed you are indeed the long-awaited Messiah. You are indeed, Jesus, the deliverer of Israel. You are the one sent by God and anointed with the Spirit. You are the prophet that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18 when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. 
You are the king that the Lord has set on Zion, his holy hill, as we read in Psalm 2, verse 6. You are the king the Lord prophesied to us through Zechariah, as we read in Zechariah 9, 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. But Peter didn't stop there. After clearly stating that Jesus is Messiah, he took it a step further and he said this, You are the son of the living God. Now, this is an important description of the Lord. It is used repeatedly throughout Scripture. A few examples include Deuteronomy 5, verse 26. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Or as the sons of Korah wrote in Psalm 42, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Or again, as Jeremiah prophesied in 10.10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. And Paul and Barnabas, as they went about their missionary journeys, when the crowd had witnessed a miracle that they had wrought, as the Lord wrought this miracle through them, the crowds cried out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And the crowds called them Zeus, and called them Hermes. But Paul and Barnabas heard the people say these things, and so they tore their robes, and they ran out to the crowds and said to them this in Acts chapter 14, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And for all who reject the gospel, the offer of forgiveness held out to them by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the writer of Hebrews makes this clear statement that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A couple of things to note here. When you see the phrase, living God, the phrase is a direct polemic or it is a, an all-out attack on the idea that there are any other gods that truly exist. That the Lord is the living God. You see that? He is the living God. The, as in the only living God, means that all other supposed gods are lifeless and non-existent. Allah does not exist. Vishnu does not exist. But all does not exist. They are all dead, lifeless, so-called gods. Any other assumed so-called god in history has never existed. This is what Paul and Barnabas meant when they called on the crowds who were telling them, look, you're Zeus and you're Hermes. He said to them, turn from these vain things meaning these so-called gods who don't truly exist. There is only one God, the God of Israel, who is the only true and living God. The phrase is on one hand an assault against source of life in creation, or for creation. All that lives draws its life from his fullness. Your life is lived because he graciously gives it to you. My life, any life, is His good and gracious gift. And we must always remember that it all belongs to Him. 
your life, the life that is in you, it belongs to God, not you. And He can take it and He can give it at His good pleasure. So that Peter used these words, Son of God and the living God, to describe Jesus means that while he hasn't quite sorted out all of the details, he, along with the disciples, recognized that Jesus is in some way divine. Stating that Jesus is the Son of the living God indicates that they, sh- they understand in some vague way that Christ shares the nature of the Father. Now, while these disciples might not at this point have been able to write a treatise on the Trinity or discuss in detail the, the intricacies of the hypostatic union, meaning how it is that Jesus can be truly human and truly divine at one time, they understood that he was in some way deity in bodily form. And upon hearing this profession, look what Christ said to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon, meaning, or in other words, you have been favored by divine grace, Simon, because what you have just confessed is information that is too high and too lofty for the human mind to come to conclude apart from God the Father revealing it to you. This is what Paul meant, the Apostle Paul meant, when he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Hear that question. Where? Where are the wise? Meaning, where are those who claim to make sense out of life? Where are those who create the systems by which and in which we live? Where are they? Which one of them on their own recognized who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and disclosed the gospel to you? None of them. Where is the scribe? Meaning, where are the Jewish theologians, the respected religious establishment, the ones who had the Bible in their hands? For thousands of years, which one of them recognized who Jesus is and heralded this information to you? None of them. Where is the debater of the age? The orators, the eloquent speakers, which of them recognized the identity of Jesus and revealed that to you? None of them. Which of these, which of these was able to use their own minds, their own human capacities to uncover and comprehend the truth of God in the person of Jesus Christ? None of them. The carpenter from Nazareth's identity as Messiah, son of the living God, must be revealed to you by the Father who is in heaven. And speaking of mankind's inability to perceive, to recognize, to come to Jesus apart from the will of the Father, the Apostle John wrote in his Gospel account these words in John 1, 12 and 13. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, the name of Christ, he gave them right, the right to become children of God who were born not of, the, of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Dr. Stephen Lawson accurately explains this passage by saying this, and I quote, People are not born again of blood, meaning it is not by human lineage or descent. 
They are not born again by the will of the flesh, meaning not by human effort, good works, or by being religious. Neither are people born of the will of man, meaning not by man's volitional choice. Rather, man is born into God's family by the sovereign will of God. This fact is implied in the very analogy of birth, end quote. And this is what Jesus is explaining to Peter here. Peter, you did not, you could not have reached this conclusion about who I am on your own. God worked in you. He worked supernaturally in you to open your eyes to this mystery, to this truth. He worked in you to see and to grasp my true identity. Now think about it. Everybody has seen Jesus' work. They've heard his teaching. They all saw the same miracles. The crowds were fed. The crowds were healed. The crowds heard the teaching. And yet none of them turned to Jesus in real faith. They all remained unconvinced and still talked about him as though he were precursor to Messiah, not Messiah. This is because such things are never enough to convince fallen sinners. Human capacity, human brains, human hearts, they are all corrupted by sin and apart from the work of the Father by the Holy Spirit in us, regenerating us and renewing us, no one will, no one can grasp who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to save us. We don't come to Jesus by looking inside ourselves. We don't come to Jesus by following our own hearts. We don't come to Jesus by listening to that inner voice in us or by working on our inner selves. Because we cannot look inside to find so profound a truth as Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, all by ourselves. Nor can we find it by looking out at fallen humanity. The greatest that flesh and blood has to offer us without the revelation of the truth to the heart by, by the Lord has always missed it. Humanity has always missed it unless God reveals it. And so Peter here is called blessed by the Lord Jesus Christ because of the gift that he has been given by his good, gracious, and sovereign Father in heaven. So Jesus continued, Not only has the Lord blessed you, Peter, by revealing this to you, but I tell you this, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If there has been a text that has been more abused than this one, I don't know what it is. This text has been unduly and erroneously appealed to by the Roman Catholic Church for the last 1,500 years to teach that Jesus was here installing Peter as the first pope. That Peter here is given primacy over the church as vicar or representative of Christ on earth. They claim, and have claimed, that everyone who, who says they're a Christian is to submit to Peter's authority. And he hands, as he was handed the authority by Christ in the form of the keys to the kingdom, to make binding spiritual and temporal pronouncements. And this authority that the Lord Jesus vested in Peter, Peter could then hand down to successors from that day to this, in an unbroken line of succession. This is a false 
mistaken and outright destructive heresy that has brought upon the church an untold amount of trouble for well over a thousand years. And in response, Protestants, fearing any hint or stain of Roman Catholicism, not wanting to look, sound, or smell like sympathy with the Roman Catholics, swung the pendulum too far the other way, as we tend to do with certain things. Some Protestants hope to simply exclude this text from Scripture itself, claiming this is not authentic, nor is it, nor is it original to the text, but that's plain false also, as all the earliest and best Greek manuscripts contain this passage. Some have tried to say, well, the rock here that is being referred to isn't actually Peter, it's the confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And while it is true that the church is comprised of those who believe, like Peter, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, look at the text. It is super clear. Jesus is referring to Peter here. Look at it. I tell you, singular. You are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. So what does it mean? It's not that we explain it away. It's we figure out what it means. What is Jesus telling Peter here? Charles Spurgeon, commenting on this text, speaks to the simplicity of it only being shrouded because of the Roman Catholic violations of the text. And he said this, and I quote, If there had been no Romanists to twist this passage, that's how they, what they call Roman Catholics, it would have presented no difficulty. Jesus is the builder, and he and his apostles make up the first course of stone in the great temple of the church, and this first course is one with the eternal rock on which it rests. And we rest upon their testimony concerning Jesus and his resurrection. End quote. It's true. Jesus is here telling Peter that he will play a unique and important role in the establishment of the church chronologically, not hierarchically chronologically. Jesus isn't telling Peter, you're the boss now. Everybody's got to do what you say, Peter. Because if that was the case, uh, none of the disciples, Peter included, got the memo. As Peter in his first letter speaks of being, in 1 Peter chapter 5, a fellow elder, a fellow elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And he then called on the elders of the church to shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not domineering those over your charge, but being examples to the flock. Peter seems to have missed the memo that he's the boss. And then later, we see James and John arguing. And they go to Jesus and they say, well, can we have the seats of uh, the seats of the best seat's right beside you. Obviously, they missed the memo, too, that Peter's supposed to be the boss. You know why they missed it? Because it's not there. No, Jesus chose Peter here to be the initial instrument that he would use to establish the church. And you actually just, you only have to look a few pages ahead to see and to witness how mightily Christ used Peter to form and to encourage and to strengthen and to witness and to preach to the church. On the day of Pentecost, after Christ had ascended, when the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and the disciples began to speak in other tongues as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance, and as the people were hearing this, they were hearing and seeing the mighty works of God, 
And hearing the gospel preached in their own language, they were perplexed by the scene and began asking each other, what does this all mean? And it was Peter. It was Peter who stood with the eleven, who lifted up his voice and who preached the church's first sermon. It was Peter who spoke to the people in Jerusalem. It was Peter who spoke to the very crowds who had called out for the death of Jesus not 40 days earlier. The very people whose voice cried out, Crucify Him! are the ones that Peter got up and spoke to. And to them he said this, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And Peter would go on, speaking as representative for the twelve, to preach and lead thousands more to Christ over the first twelve chapters of Acts. And Jesus told Peter, On you, who by my grace will become a most effective witness for the gospel, by your courageous, bold, spirit-led gospel proclamation of this confession, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, you, Peter, will be used to build, to establish, to gather in souls, and to strengthen the church in its formative stages. And the church that Christ will build using the witness of Peter and the apostles, look at what he says next, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not overpower the advance of this church that Christ is building. The walls and the gates of hell will not be too strong. The gates of hell will be like the walls of Jericho, walls that could not, walls that did not prevail against the people of God as they marched around those walls once a day for seven days and then seven times on the seventh day. These walls suffered a catastrophic sudden fall as the people of Israel then marched in on the city and devoted the entirety of it to destruction. The gates of hell will meet with the same end. Picture the gates of hell standing, opening up like the black gates of Mordor from Lord of the Rings, sending out its armies, its vast armies, to attack the church. Those armies, they will not succeed against. Those armies will not prevail against Christ's church. Picture defensive structures set up around a city or around a place to keep the light out and maintain the darkness within. Kind of reminds me of the totalitarian regimes we see in our own day who try to keep the internet out so that they can keep controlling the minds of its subjects. The defensive structures that stand, that have been erected by hell itself to keep the light out, will not prevail against the advance of the church as we bring the light of the gospel into the world. Picture gated walls set up around the church in order to keep it in, to keep it trapped, to keep it from advancing into the world, to keep it from influencing the world with the light of Christ. Such walls will not prevail against the church either. Whatever is meant here by the gates of hell, whether they're defensive structures, structures, constricting structures, structures that are meant to hold things in so that they don't get out, whatever it is, one thing is for certain, they will not prevail. The church belongs to Christ. 
The church is being built by Christ. The church will never fail. The church will continue to advance and prevail until He returns. And Jesus made that clear, for example, in John 16, when He said, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And the Lord has already revealed the final destination of the powers and the principalities that fight against the advancing church, as we read in Revelation 20. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the future. Christ wins. His church prevails. This is the future that has been reserved for those who have put up the gates of hell. As it has been written, so shall it, will come, so shall it come to pass. The great pastor J.C. Ryle wrote with conviction about this prevailing church, saying this, and I quote, Nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros, they have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. Christ's church is a bush which is often burning and yet is not consumed. End quote. So you see, each and every one of us will find ourselves on one of two teams. We will either be on the church's team a part of the bride of Christ who prevails over the forces of darkness that are arrayed against her, those who ultimately end up blessed by and with being in the presence of our Lord for eternity, enjoying Him who is the great delight of our souls, or we will join the devil, the beast, and the false prophet in the lake of fire where we will be racked with the torments of God's wrath day and night forever and ever alongside of them. And the measuring rod used to determine who will end up where is your answer to this question. Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth is? If you say, my Savior, my Lord, the Son of the living God, in whom I put my faith and trust, then one day, one day you will hear these most blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Master. However, if you conclude that Jesus is anything other than the Son of the living God, the Savior in whom you must put your trust, then know this, at this moment you are an enemy of God. At this moment you are storing up for yourselves wrath 
on the day of judgment. And should you continue in your refusal and then die in that condition, you will hear that most awful pronouncement from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And hear me clearly. No one can make this decision for you. Not your parents, not your friends, not your children. And so I leave you with the most important question that you will ever hear in your entire life. Who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? Father, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you and I thank you for the work of the Spirit in all of us who believe here this morning. I thank you that you have revealed to us who Jesus Christ actually is. And I pray that your Spirit would be working on each and every person in here, either comforting those of us who know you and love you, inspiring us to look to you with greater peace and with greater joy and greater delight, knowing that you've overcome the world. I also pray that if people don't know you, that you would just be pounding and beating on their hearts. Let your Spirit bring about conviction of sin, conviction of their eternal destiny apart from you. Lord, I pray that you would perform the miraculous work of changing hearts this morning. All to your glory. I pray that everyone in this sanctuary today would say, before we stand before your judgment, your seat of judgment, before it's too late, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray this all in his name. Amen.